hello and welcome back to the Cory Doctorow podcast. It has been a heck of a week. As I mentioned last week, I spent much of this week organizing, launching, and running the Kickstarter for Red Team Blues. It's my next novel, an anti-finance finance thriller about Marty Hench, a 67-year-old would-be retired forensic accountant who's got one last job to do who's uh, specialized in Silicon Valley scams. This is quite a moment to be writing about Silicon Valley scams, as you might imagine. Anyway, I am raising money to pay for the audiobook edition. I'm actually going to be in the studio all this coming week with Will Wheaton as he reads that audiobook. I'm hoping to get you some audio from that for next week. I am also pre-selling the hardcover, the ebook, the audiobook. There are a few big premiums. Most of them are all gone now, but there is the chance to commission a Marty Hench short story about any financial shenanigan of Silicon Valley that you choose, provided it's one that we can mutually agree would make a good story. So if there's some weird finance scam you're interested in, there's three of those. No one's picked those up yet, but all the other major awards have been snapped up, which is great, as is the outpouring of support from so many of my readers and listeners. You know, if you enjoy this podcast, if you enjoy Pluralistic.net, if you've enjoyed my books and you've ever said, how can I thank Corey for the free work that he puts into open access content that anyone can use and share and so on. This is how you can go and pre-order the audiobook, the ebook, the print book, some combination thereof. That is what makes the difference to this book's launch, which then makes the difference to the next book's launch and the next books and so on. I am also going to be hitting the road not long after this book comes out. In fact, I'm going to be doing some travel even before the book comes out. Uh, April 20th to 21st, I'll be in Chicago for the Antitrust and Competition Conference at the Stigler Center at the University of Chicago. This is the Beyond the Consumer Welfare Standard Conference. And then we're doing the book launch on April 25th in San Diego at Mysterious Galaxy. There are some other events going to be after that, but they don't have URLs yet. They're not yet public, but there will be some other events. And then I'm going to the Bay Area. I'll be at the Bay Area Book Fest in Berkeley on May 6th and 7th. Then I'll be in Calgary. And again, there are some other events that are not listed here, but will be coming up. But the next scheduled event is May 11th in Calgary for WordFest. I'll be in Oxford, England with Tim Harford on May the 29th. I'll be in Manchester with Ian Forrester on May the 31st. And I'm going to be doing the University College London Peter Kirstein Lecture on June the 1st. So that is a lot of travel coming up. Thankfully, my dumb kitchen remodel is basically done. We are now unboxing all of the crap that's been sitting under our eaves for the last two and a half, three months while we've been discovering all the dirty secrets hidden in the walls of our house that previous builders had left there as unpleasant surprises for us. Thankfully, all the fire hazards, termite, nod, lumber, and missing vapor barriers have been remediated. Unfortunately, that cost a lot more than we were banking on. So, well, there's that. So as I mentioned, I'm doing this Kickstarter. And the reason I have to do the Kickstarter is because I won't allow digital rights management on my work. And there's kind of an easy way to understand this. So digital rights management is this encryption And the only people who can authorize you to remove it are the people who put it on. So in this case, if it were an audible audiobook, that would be Amazon. So this is like weirdly and incredibly forcefully true. If you go out and you like pirate my audiobook, right? If you make an infringing copy of my audiobook and give it to someone else, even if you sell it to someone else, the maximum penalties, criminal and civil, are $400,000. If I give you a tool to remove the DRM from my audiobook that I paid to produce, that Audible, which is Amazon's audiobook division, sold you, I am liable for a $500,000 fine 
and a five-year prison sentence for a first offense. In other words, it is more illegal for me to help you take your lawfully acquired ebook off of an Amazon platform and onto one that you know may pay me more or give you a better deal or both than it is for you to actually pirate that ebook. That is the state of copyright law that we live in today. There's a reason that Audible forces everyone who sells an audiobook on its platform to use DRM, and that is because every dollar that you invest in an audiobook from Audible is a dollar you will have to forfeit if you want to leave Audible. And every dollar I convince you to invest on Audible by selling my works there is a dollar that I have to gamble on you forfeiting if I ever want to break up with Amazon and sell my books somewhere else and not on Amazon's platform. So this is a catastrophe. It's very bad news, especially given that Amazon controls 90% of the audiobook market. And it's even worse news because we know how Amazon treats its suppliers when it has control over them. For example, ACX, which is Amazon's indie platform for audiobook creators. So it's where independent authors and small publishers go to sell their audiobooks. They're embroiled in this $100 million wage theft scandal where they just stole from those creators knowing that they couldn't get away from it. If you look up the AudibleGate hashtag, you'll learn more about that. So I'm doing this Kickstarter and I am paying for my studio time. I'm paying Will Wheaton, who isn't cheap and is worth every penny. No one reads my books as well as he does. And I'm paying an editor and we are going to have a very high quality professional audiobook. And, um, you know, I have so far done very well on this Kickstarter. I'd like to do even better. I'd particularly like to pre-sell a lot of audiobooks along with hardcovers because those hardcovers get run over a BookSense scanner the day and date the book goes on sale. That counts towards my bestseller status. I'd also like to do better because I'd like to be able to show other authors of modest repute and means that they too can route around Audible, as I say, treat them as damage and route around them. I think that we have a hell of a collective action problem ahead of us. Getting everybody to, to start boycotting Audible or even a critical mass of them to discipline Audible so that it is forced to offer a better deal. It's forced to allow us to choose at a minimum whether we want DRM on our works so that we can at a minimum know that if we quit Audible, either as listeners or as creators, that if we quit Audible, that we're not going to pay a financial penalty to take our business elsewhere. So that's kind of the story of the Kickstarter. I made a little short link for it. If you go to pluralistic.net slash Kickstarter, all lowercase, although I'll do one with a capitalization. Why not? Pluralistic.net slash Kickstarter, you will be taken to the Kickstarter, and I hope you'll consider backing it. So as I said, I'm going to read to you from the start of Red Team Blues, this Silicon Valley noir novel I have written. And as I also mentioned, Will Wheaton is going to be reading it on the audiobook. So I thought it would be an interesting study in contrast. I do love hearing books read by their authors. But, you know, the first time I heard Will read my work, it was when he read my story Scroogled for my With a Little Help collection. And I was like, nobody has ever read my work in a way that illuminated it for me in ways that, you know, revealed things to me that I didn't know was there, right? Where it really felt, I mean, I've had this with other narrators, don't get me wrong, but no one's done it to this extent where I really felt like the narrator was bringing something to the work that wasn't already in it, right? That they weren't just like doing a good job reading, but rather they were actually discovering depths in the work that I hadn't known was there, which in fact, they weren't discovering, they were bringing to it, they were adding to it. And so I'm going to read this for you. And I hope 
that you'll enjoy my reading. I'll probably go for 15, 20 minutes. But I hope I can come back to you next week, depending on how it works out in the recording sessions. I hope I can come back to you next week with Will's reading. So you can hear the difference. You can hear what it sounds like when the author interprets their work and what it sounds like when a really talented actor interprets their work. I think it's worth paying for this stuff. I've got three more books coming out after Red Team Blues in the next 12 months. And one of them is a nonfiction book. And I'm probably going to read that one on my own. I'm probably going to read that myself because I do think that that's a book that I have a grounding in that other people wouldn't because it's really about this esoteric tech policy stuff that I'm into. That's uh, the Internet Con from Verso, which comes out in September. But for the fiction, collaborating with an actor really does something amazing. Anyway, that's enough kind of maundering. Once again, that's pluralistic.net slash Kickstarter. And here we go with my reading of Red Team Blues coming on April 25th from Tor Books in Canada and the United States and from Head of Zeus in the UK and the rest of the Commonwealth. Chapter 1 One evening, I got a wild hair and drove all night from San Diego to Menlo Park. Why Menlo Park? It had both a triple Michelin star place and a dear old friend within spitting distance of the Walmart parking lot where I could park the unsalted hash, leaving me free to drink as much as I cared to and still be able to walk home and crawl into bed. I'd done a job that turned out better than I'd expected, well enough that I was set for the year if I lived carefully. I didn't want to live carefully. The age for that was long past. I wanted to live it up. There'd be more work. I wanted to celebrate. Truth be told, I also didn't want to contemplate the possibility that, at the age of 67, new work might stop coming in. Silicon Valley hates old people. And that was okay, because I hated Silicon Valley. Professionally, that is. Getting close to Bakersfield, I pulled the unsalted hash into a rest stop to stretch my legs and check my phone. After a putter around the picnic tables and vending machine, I walked the perimeter of my foolish and ungainly and luxurious tour bus, checking the tires and making sure the cargo compartments were dogged and locked. I climbed back in, checked my sludge levels and decided they were low enough that I could use my own toilet. Then, finally, having forced myself to wait, sat on one of the buttery leather chairs and checked my messages. That's how I learned that Danny Laser was looking for me. He was working the usual channels, DMs from people who I tended to check in with when I was looking for work, and it put a shine on my evening, because 67 or no, there was always work for someone with my skill set. Danny Laser had a problem with his trustless coin keys, which relied on the best protected cryptographic secrets in the world, nominally. So I messaged him. One rest stop later, just past Gilroy, I got his reply. He was eager to see me. Would I call on him at his home in Palo Alto? My pathetic little ego swelled up at his eagerness. I told him I had a big dinner planned the next night, but I'd see him the morning after. Truth be told, putting off a man as important as Danny Laser, even for 24 hours, made me feel more important still. I could tell from his reply that the delay chafed at him. I felt petty, but not so much that I cancelled my dinner. My dear old friend was a lively sort, and it was possible we'd walk from the restaurant to her place for an hour or three before I returned to the Walmart parking lot. Dinner didn't disappoint. 
and neither did the fun and games afterward. It was a very nice capstone to a very successful job, and a very good prelude to another job for one of the nicest rich men, or richest nice men, in Silicon Valley. Danny was old Silicon Valley, a guy who started his own UUCP host so he could help distribute the alt hierarchy, and once helped Tim May bring a load of unlicensed firearms across state lines from a Nevada gun show. He'd lived like a monk for decades, writing cryptographic code and fighting with the NSA over it, and had mortgaged his parents' house back east to keep himself and a couple of programmers in business in a tiny office for a decade, while he and Galit lived in a 30-foot motorhome that needed engine tuning once a month just so it could trundle from one parking space to the next. It was a bet that there would come a day when the Internet's innocence would end and people would want privacy from each other and their governments. And he kept doubling down on that bet, through every boom and bust, living on ramen and open cereal boxes from the used food store, refusing to part with any equity except to promising hackers who'd join him. And then the bet paid off, and he became Daniel Moses Laser, with a 75% stake in Keypairs LLC, whose crypto libraries and workflow tools were the much-ballyhooed picks and shovels of the next internet revolution. Keypairs wasn't the first unicorn in Silicon Valley, but it was the first one that never took a dime in venture capital, and whose sole angels were Danny's parents back in Jersey, to whom Danny sent at least $100 million before they made him stop, insisting that they had nothing more that they wanted in the world. Galit picked out a big place in Twin Peaks that you could see Alcatraz from on a clear day, gutted it to the foundation slab, bare studs and ceiling joists, completely rebuilt it while being mindful of both Danny's specification for networking receptacles throughout and Galit's encyclopedic knowledge of the arts and crafts movement. One day, as she was bringing out some Mendocino Grig and a cheese board for the two of them to enjoy from their half-built porch, she gasped complained of pain in both her arms, then her chest, and then she collapsed and was dead before the ambulance arrived. It had been a good marriage, 22 years and no kids because there was nowhere in their old RV to put them unless they'd wanted to hang them from the rafters. She'd been his rock while he'd built up key pairs, but He'd been hers, too, rubbing her feet and helping her deal with the endless humiliations that a woman doing administrative work in Silicon Valley had to put up with. He didn't see it that way, though. After he took possession of her ashes, all he could talk about was how they'd wasted nearly a quarter of a century chasing a fortune that didn't do either of them a bit of good, and it had cost them the time they could have spent in a beach shack in the Baja while he did two hours of contract work a month to pay for machete sharpening and new hammocks once a year. A procession of Silicon Valley's most powerful leaders and most respected technologists filed through the Palo Alto teardown they'd bought to Perchin while the Twin Peaks project was underway. People who weren't merely wealthy, but famous for their vision, their sensitivity, their insight. They argued with him about his crushing regrets and tried to tell him how much good he'd done, both for Galit and for the world, but he was unreachable. A consensus emerged among the friends of Danny that he was not long for this world. Not that he was going to kill himself or anything, but that he would simply stop caring about living 
and then nature would take its course. They were right. Given all the facts and evidence, that was a foregone conclusion. But there was one hidden variable. Sathirumani Balakrishnan, who was 25, brilliant, and had made a series of lateral moves within key pairs. Customer support, then compliance, and finally Danny's PA, a job she was vastly overqualified for. She helped him flip the house, then to turn key pairs over to a management committee carefully balanced between hackers who'd been with Danny since the PDP-8 days and people with real managerial experience and proven experience growing companies and running big teams. He got rid of all the shares he'd taken in over the years to sit on advisory boards and stuck everything into Vanguard index tracker funds, the ones that didn't buy a lot of tech stocks. As far as anyone could tell, Sethu didn't try to talk him out of any of this, just offered efficient, intelligent, and supremely organized help in getting Danny's life's work out of a realm into which it had to be actively managed by someone with Danny's incredible drive, insight, and technical knowledge, and into an investment vehicle managed by an overgrown spreadsheet, one that would multiply his money ahead of the CPI year on year until someone built a guillotine on his lawn. What Sethu did talk him into was buying a condo around the corner from that Palo Alto teardown, an eight-story place, quiet, built on the grave of another Palo Alto teardown that had been snapped up by property developers in the glory days before NIMBY planning ended all high-density infill within 50 miles of Stanford. The Camino Real had excellent security, as well as all the amenities— a pool, a gym, and a set of spring-loaded seismic dampers set deep into the bedrock that turned the whole place into a bouncy castle whenever the San Andreas Fault got a touch of indigestion. It was steps to California Avenue and five Michelin star restaurants, one with three stars, two with two, and it cost him eight million plus furnishings, which Sethu oversaw, going all in on Danish woods for a mid-century modern feel that went great with the rooftop garden that came with the penthouse unit. Sethu got him interested in trying all that Michelin star food, a far cry from the ramen and slightly irregular breakfast cereals, and from there it was the chef's tables and then the private cooking classes, and then a major reno to the penthouse to fit it out with a kitchen that would have made Heston Blumenthal gasp and twirl. They spent the month that the renos took in an exclusive lodge near a slightly active Costa Rican volcano, checking out the bromeliads and the howler monkeys. He came back bronzed and fit from all that volcano hiking, and became one of the great chefs of the new aristocracy, even pulling out the old alt.gourmand posts from the prehistory of Usenet. I don't know when they became a couple, but I imagine it was a natural thing. Danny had a big heart, and he'd loved Galit with all of it, and with Galit gone and Danny still around, his heart wasn't going to sit idly by. Sethu is beautiful and brilliant and good at what she does, and those were all the traits that attracted Danny to Galit in the first place. The Camino Real security gave me the twice-over and then emitted me. The elevator doors gave a sophisticated sigh and welcomed me, and the buttonless panel lit up PH, and my blood pooled a little in my feet as I attained liftoff. Danny looked at least ten years younger than the last time I'd seen him, craggy but handsome, and the pounds he'd put on had only filled him out so that he wasn't such an ectomorphic scarecrow. 
He'd definitely been hitting the kettlebells, too, and his tight Japanese tee clung just enough that I could see that he'd gotten some definition in his pecs and biceps. That's hard muscle to acquire once you hit your 50s. Someone had been making Danny put in his reps. Danny's an intense guy who believes so fiercely in the significance and beauty and urgency of cryptography that he could easily captivate a room full of people with an impromptu lecture on the subject and would not relinquish that hold until they all had to leave. He wasn't a bore, but he wasn't exactly normal, and yet, as far as I knew, everyone who'd ever become personally acquainted with him liked him. A lot. Well, you don't look like a man who got through a pre-feast at the Palmier. Even with the flights, you shouldn't be that bilious, Mart. What'd you do, stop for Oreos on the way back to your double-wide? I let this pour over me as he showed me into the foyer, and I shucked my scuffed old loafers, the ones I saved for personal days when I didn't have to impress a client. First of all, Laser, the unsalted hash is a 40-foot, state-of-the-art touring bus with seven feet of internal clearance, an induction range, a deep freeze, and a sound system that can set off car alarms for a block. It is not a double-wide. Secondly, the palmier was great, and I didn't get the pre-feast. I got a taster at the chef's table with a friend, and we stayed up later than we should have, and I still managed to drag myself here for a business conference at this unholy hour. I'm running on three hours sleep and digesting a 3,000-calorie dinner is all. Finally, I don't stop for Oreos, ever. I have a supply of 1995 vintage Hydroxes in one of those deep freezes. The original recipe contains all those great trans fats that make for excellent long-term frozen flavor and texture retention. I would offer you a package, but I won't because they are mine, and I treasure them beyond all reason and plan to make my stash last until I can no longer consume solid food, whereupon I plan to consume the balance in smoothie form. He took my shoes and tossed them into a closet and slammed the door, making a face, and then burst out laughing and grabbed me in a bear hug that reminded me of those new biceps of his. Man, it is good to see you, Marty. Come in, come in. We'll go out onto the roof. I got a quick tour of a lot of teak and curves and angles, like a set dresser had been given an unlimited budget to decorate the boss's office on a mid-century period drama. Then he opened a sliding door out onto the roof deck, which had some very nice landscaping and potted shrubs, a meandering stream patrolled by fat koi and fed by a two-foot waterfall, some comfortable-looking and elegant teak loungers, and Sethu. She had an easel set up and was painting in oils, an impressionistic landscape of Palo Alto's nimbified one-family houses and dinky Main Street. It was a couple of billion dollars worth of real estate dressed up as middle-class houses from the same mid-century dreamland as the furnishings in the living room. She turned and saw us and narrowed her eyes just a tiny amount before cleaning her brushes and hanging up her smock on the easel's corner. "'Hi, hun," she said. "'This must be your friend Mr. Hench.' Danny beamed at her, an expression I remembered from his most successful demos, that prideful look he got when his code performed some miracle. "'Marty, I don't know if you ever met Sethu back in the old days.' "'I don't know that we were ever introduced properly,' I said. She'd let me in once or twice, when I'd come by to see if I could pull Danny out of his tailspin. But she'd been his PA then. "'Well, in that case, Sethu Romani Laser, meet Martin Hench. Marty, meet Sethu.' I'm pretty sure my facial expression didn't change when he dropped the last name on me. I'd already noticed the rock on her finger, of course. 
A bachelor of my age and experience takes note of these things automatically, without conscious intervention. I'm pretty sure what Danny said next was that same pride speaking, not a failure of my poker face. Married her last year, or rather, she married me, despite being significantly out of my league. Lucky fella, I said. Congrats to both of you. He got us settled into loungers, and Sethu mentioned that she was going in for lemonade and offered us some. She brought it out in sweating tall glasses with silicone straws, and then went back to her easel, far enough away that it wouldn't seem odd not to include her in our conversation. I sipped as Danny scrolled his phone for a moment, double-checking his notes, and took Sethu in. She was beautiful, of course, but I'd known that since I'd first met her at the door of that teardown that Danny had settled into as his final resting place. Now, though, she had the kind of haircut that some very bright topiarist had charged her at least a thousand bucks for, and with it, the kind of poise I associate with very beautiful, very accomplished women who are also very, very rich. Something in the posture a kind of deep relaxation you rarely see. Having a very deep cash buffer can give a woman the same tranquility as any middling specimen of manhood gets for free, the liberation from casual predation that men don't even notice. Danny put his phone down at last. So I hear you did some work recently. Bonwick? Reardon Factory? I nodded. Yeah, Brian and I did some business, but it's not the kind of thing I can discuss. You know that. He lost something, I found it, and I made him whole. He snorted. Marty, you don't make people whole. Your commission's still 25%? It is, I said. And I still don't charge anything to take a job. Not even expenses or a retainer. I take the risk, I get a reward. That's a proposition I think you relate to. I'm familiar with the general idea. He looked around at his penthouse garden, his beautiful young wife, his view of the strivers of Palo Alto and their leave-it-to-beaver houses, all a testament to his willingness to take all the risk and his unwillingness to share his rewards. You ever take payment in crypto? I prefer fiat, this being the cutesy word that crypto weirdos use for real money. I have smart accountants who keep my tax bite down to a manageable slice, and I got no other reason to accept distributed Sudoku puzzles in lieu of greenbacks. Very funny, he said. Cryptocurrency hustlers hate it when you point out that the whole blockchain emits billions of tons of CO2 to help repeatedly compute pointless mathematical puzzles. You're familiar with how crypto works, though, right? Danny, I love you like a brother, but... I hope I'm not about to get a sales pitch for a trustless coin. The only sour note in the previous night's dinner had been a couple of bros at the chef's table who'd spent the first hour talking about smart contracts. It was a hazard of any public space in SV, and I accepted it with good grace, but I wouldn't tolerate it in private places. Life is too short. No pitch. I just wanted to make sure that you're up to speed on what I'm going to tell you next. Forensic accounting is one thing, but when you throw in crypto, it's a whole different world. I grunted noncommittally. Danny had been around since crypto meant cryptography, and I hadn't figured him to become one of those blockchain hustlers. They're the kind of smart people who outsmart themselves, especially when it comes to shenanigans, forgetting that their public ledger is public, and all their transactions are visible to the whole world forever. Forensic accounting never had a better friend than crypto, with its mix of public ledgers, deluded masters of the universe, and suckers pumping billions into the system. It was full employment for me and my competitors until cryptocurrency's carbon footprint rendered the earth uninhabitable. 
There are certain technical differences between trustless and other coins. Will you allow me to explain them to you? I promise it's germane, and I'm not trying to sell you anything. Aw, hell, Danny, you can tell me anything. I just get sick of being hustled. Me too, pal. Okay, if you mention distributed Sudoku puzzles, you know something about proof of work, the way blockchain maintains the integrity of its ledger by having everyone in the system repeatedly do compute work that reaffirms all the entries in the ledger. So long as the value of all the assets in the ledger is less than the electricity bill for taking over the majority of the compute work, they're safe. That means the more valuable all this blockchain stuff becomes, the more coal they have to burn to keep it all from being stolen, I said. It was something I'd almost said to the bros at dinner the night before, but I didn't want an argument to distract from the otherwise lovely time I'd been having with my entirely lovely companion. That's fair, he said. That's what every greenie who hasn't received a couple of mil in donations from surprised crypto millionaires will tell you. But Marty, that's a problem with proof of work, not with distributed ledgers. If you could build a blockchain that had a negligible carbon budget, you could do a lot with it. Launder money. Badly. That, he said, lots of Chinese entrepreneurs and officials are anxious to be currency controls. But it's not just money. It's anything you want to have universally available, unfalsifiable, and cryptographically secured. Laundered money. He made a face. Cynic. Not laundered money. Genocide proof ID. Cryptographically secured, write-only manifests of a person's identifiers, including nationality, vitals, and ethnic group. But each one has its own key, held by the blue helmets. You get to a border and you present your biometrics, and the UN tells the border guards your nationality, but not your ethnicity. Fanciful. Cynic. Yeah, fine. No one's doing it yet. But we could. All that blockchain for good shit that the hucksters talked up to make it sound like proof of work wasn't a crime against humanity. Trustless coin lets you do them because it doesn't need the Sudoku. I dredged up memories of half-digested podcasts I'd listened to on the road. Is it a proof-of-stake thing? He snorted. (laughs) Don't try to sound smart, Marty. You'll sprain something. No, it's secure enclaves. That crypto subprocessor in your iPhone that Apple uses to keep you from switching to another app store? It can run code. What's more, it can sign the output. So we can send you a program and check to see whether it ran as intended, because we know that the owner of a phone can't override the secure enclave. Far as Apple's concerned, iPhone owners are the enemy, and their threat model treats the device owner as an adversary, as someone who might get apps someplace that doesn't kick 15-30% to vigorous up to Apple for every transaction, depriving its shareholders of their rake. Any device with a secure enclave or other trusted computing module is a device that treats its owner as the enemy. That's a device we need, because when you're in the trustless coin network, that device will defend me from you and you from me. I don't have to trust you, I just have to trust that you can't break into your own phone, which is to say that I have to trust that Apple's engineers did their job correctly, and well, you know, they got a pretty good track record, Marty. Except, he finished his lemonade and scowled at the reusable straw. Yeah, except. Look, Trustless Coin is on track to become the standard public ledger for the world. I know, I know, every founder talks that make-a-dent-in-the-universe crap, but I mean it. You want to know how serious I am about this? I took in outside capital. He let me sit with that for a moment. Danny Laser, the man who ate ramen in a 20-year-old Ben Axel RV for decades with the love of his life so he'd never have to take a nickel from any of those bloodsuckers on Sand Hill Road, and he took in outside capital. 
Daniel Laser, a man who'd owned 75% of a unicorn, which is to say 7.5 times 10 to the 8 U.S. American greenback simoleon dollars. And he took in outside capital. Why? And also, what for? He laughed. Watching you work out a problem is like watching a bulldog chew a wasp, brother. You got a hell of a poker face, but when you start overclocking the old CPU, it just melts. I'll tell you why and what for. First of all, I wanted to create something for Sethu. She's never had the chance to live up to her potential. She's smart, Marty. Smart like Galit was, but she's also technical and managerial and just born to run things. I've never met a better candidate for a CEO than she is. And I'm not young, you know that. And there's going to be a long time after I'm dead when she'll still be in her prime. And I wanted to make something that she could grow into and grow around her. I've been playing with the idea behind Trustless since the early 2000s, when Microsoft released its first trusted computing papers, all the way back in the Palladium days. So Sethu and I hung up a whiteboard in the guest room and started spending a couple hours a day in there. I didn't want to bring in anyone else at first, because it seemed like a hobby and not a business, and hell, every cryptographer I know is working 70-hour weeks as it is. Then I didn't want to bring in anyone else, because I got a sense of how big this damn thing is. I mean, there's about $2 trillion in assets in the blockchain today, and that's with all the stupid friction and proof of work. When we lift the shackles off of it, whoosh, we're talking about a ledger that will encompass more assets than the total balance sheets of 20 or 30 of the smallest UN members combined. You know me, Marty. I don't believe in much, but when I do believe in something, I'm all in. And so, I brought some people in. What for, though? Danny, how much of your key pairs jackpot did you manage to blow? How much money could you possibly need and for what? Are you building your own chip factory? Buying a country? We actually thought of doing both of those things, you know, but we decided we didn't need the headaches. The key pairs money has only grown since I cashed out, thanks to the bull run. I can't spend it all, won't be able to. It would sicken me to try because I'd have to be so wasteful even to make a dent in it. The reason I went for outside capital wasn't money, it was connections. I groaned. Every grifter in private equity and VC land claimed that they had connections that represented value-add for their portfolio companies. The social butterfly market was implausible on its face, and in practice, it was just a way of turning cocktail parties into a business expense. Come on, Danny. You know people already. Not these people. And he did the thing. He looked from side to side, up and down. He turned off his phone and held his hand out for mine and carried them both to the little step next to the water feature and set them down so they'd be in the white noise zone. He came back and looked around again. I got signing keys for four of the most commonly deployed secure enclaves. He looked around again. I think I know what that means, Danny, but maybe you could spell it out. I'm just a dumb old accountant, not a cryptographic legend like yourself, and for God's sake, stop looking around. I'll let you know if I see anyone sneaking up on us. Sorry, sorry, okay. The secure enclave gets a program, runs it, and signs the output. The secure enclave's little toy operating system says that it does this reliably and without exception. You see a signature on the program's output, you know that the program produced it. That toy OS, it's simple, stupid, brutal. Does about six things very well and nothing else. You can't change that program. Secure enclaves are designed to be non-serviceable. Even taking them off the main board wrecks them. You get them into a lab and decap them and hit them with an electron tunneling microscope, you still won't be able to recover the signing keys or force a false SIG. But if you have the signing keys, 
You can just simulate a secure enclave on any computer. Then you can run any operating system you want on it, including one that will forge signatures. You do that, and you can falsify the ledger. You can move unlimited sums from any part of the balance sheet to your part of the balance sheet. You can jackpot the whole fucking thing. I blew out air. Well, that seems like a defect in the system, all right. It can't be helped. We call it trustless, but there's always some trust in a system like this. You're not trusting the other users of the system or the company that made the software. You're trusting that a couple of leading manufacturers of cryptographic coprocessors and subprocessors, companies with decades of experience, will maintain operational security and not lose control of the keys that their entire business and the entire business of all their customers and their customers' customers are dependent upon. You're not trusting the other users, but you're trusting them. And yet, I said, looking over at Sethu, who was painting away and performing an excellent simulation of someone who wasn't eavesdropping, you found someone willing to send you some of those keys. Yes, he said, and gave me a calm, no-bullshit, eye-to-eye stare. I did. It's useful to have those, especially when you're first kicking a new cryptocurrency around. You make a smart contract with a bad line of code in it, you create a bug bounty with an unlimited payout. So in the early days, when you're figuring this stuff out, you do a little ledger rewriting. You do rewriting on a read-only ledger that no one is ever supposed to rewrite. He rolled his eyes. Ethereum did it early on, moved 50 mil in stolen payout from a bad smart contract out of the crook's account and back into the mark's account. No one made too much of a fuss. I mean, the immutable ledger sounds like a great idea until someone no stupider than you gets taken for 50 mil, and then rewriting the ledger is just sound fiscal policy in service to fundamental justice. But Ethereum told everyone they were doing it. Sounds like you did it all on the down low? We were early. No one was even paying attention. All we wanted was a ledger whose early entries weren't an eternal monument to my stupid mistakes as I climbed the learning curve. Fine. Vain, but fine. Still, getting those keys meant a lot of power for a little reputation laundering. He sighed and looked away. Yeah. The thing is, I'm not the only one who makes mistakes. We are aiming for trillions secured on our chain. Trillions, Marty. Ten to the twelve. It's an unforgiving medium, and the stakes are high. The Ethereum lesson was clear. A couple of divide-by-zeros or fence-post errors, a single badly-typed variable or buffer overrun, and the whole thing could sink. I needed an eraser. Not on day zero, but well before I attained liftoff. Every hacker builds in a back door, huh? Don't call it that. Call it an undo button. Okay, then. An undo button in a system whose cryptography is supposed to prevent undo at all costs, but not a back door. You, my friend, are too smart. I miss the days when forensic accountancy and security engineering were distinct fields. Me too, pal. So, what happened? Your keys took a walk? We built the system to be secure. You know me. I'm a paranoid old creep with a dirty mind. So everything I did, I did right. The keys were on an air gap system. I bought that system myself off a pile of boxed HP laptops at Fry's just a couple weeks before they closed their doors for good. Rest in peace. It was time. But back when you could go into Fry's, you could pick up a laptop sealed in shrink wrap, carry it yourself to the cashier, pay cash for it, and walk out, stopping only to show your receipt to the poor door checker. 
Then you could take it to a data center, badge into the clean room, lay out your workbench, unscrew that sucker, and remove every single network interface with a pair of pliers, not just snipping the traces, but ripping them right off the board. Lucky you didn't snap the board. He grimaced. I did. I bought three of them so I could take a mulligan or two if I needed it. I only needed one spare as it turned out. Then it went into a safe, a good safe, rated for three hours. There's a watchman who makes physical rounds of that safe room every two hours. And I locked at the BIOS with a hardware token. Steal that laptop, you'd still need my token. And yet, you know how they say that anyone can design a security system that he himself can't figure out how to break? Schneier's Law. Schneier's Law. Yeah, someone smarter than I am figured it out. The watchman? No, though, he might have been in on it. They fired him. The safe was open. The laptop was gone. And the hardware token? You'll love this. I can't wait. He tugged his forelock and adopted a broad Cockney accent that would have embarrassed Dick Van Dyke. Governor, I was pickpocketed, so I was. I don't believe it. Pickpocketing is supposed to be a dead art. Who was working this scam, Apollo Robbins? He shrugged. I don't reckon so, but yeah, there's plenty of Vegas acts that do pickpocketing stuff, and there's a pretty big YouTube competitive pickpocket scene with tutorials. Plus, there's the European talent. A lot of it. Never really died out there. Covent Garden is like a plague reservoir for the pathogen, and you get an outbreak every year or two. You had the hardware token on your keyring? That day I did. I'd been in the data center. Then we went to dinner. Hydra. The pre-feast. The chef's table is nice, but the taster menu gets you the octopodi. Someone bumped me between the data center and my front door. Oof, I said. Did you have to ring the downstairs neighbor's doorbell and climb out onto their balcony? Don't be stupid, he said. In the first place, Sethu has her own keys. In the second place, the outside doors here are locked and armed when we're AFK. I'd noticed the locks on the outside doors and the brake sensors and the cameras, both the covert and the overt ones. There were probably some I'd missed. I wouldn't put it past Danny to have a LiDAR rig in the shrubs, something to help the system distinguish between cat burglars and house cats. The watchman from the data center, I said. That's your guy. Probably not the mastermind, but he'll be the key to it all. Looks like they socially engineered him. Matched him on Tinder, messaged him. Oh, is that where you work? I'm just around the corner. Want to meet me for a quick boba tea? Catfished. Honey trap. He sighed. (sighs) Yeah, it was a good one. You reported the theft? The insurance company will pay for a new laptop, which frankly I don't need, because I already have the spare I bought when I was going through the whole rigmarole to set up the air gap. But that's not the valuable part. No, it isn't. How about the keys? Yeah, how about them? First, have you warned your source that you lost them so they can tell Apple and Samsung and all the other manufacturers that rely on those secure enclave chips? And second, have you warned your users that the money isn't safe? He looked over at Sethu, at Palo Alto, at his lemonade glass, and at the clouds in the sky. Long looks. The silence spoke volumes. How much money is the trustless coin ledger worth, Danny? He looked me dead in the eye now. About a billion. We'd already been talking about trillions, so I shouldn't have been shocked. But tech founders are always throwing around big numbers, and I've developed the mental habit of knocking a few zeros off of any claims about total addressable markets. Trustless coin was the new crypto on the block. My unconscious estimate of its value was in the low tens of millions, which is also a big number, but not a billion. A billion here, a billion there. He cut me off. Pretty soon it starts to add up to real money. Yeah, I know, Marty. 
Don't joke, you're not good at it. When did you lose the keys? He checked his watch. A mechanical one, not ostentatious. An old wartime Rolex, from when men's oysters were the size of a nickel, not these giant tourbillon monstrosities that cost a million bucks and look like a poor man's idea of a rich man's watch. 74 hours and 30 minutes ago. Give or take. You're not good at comedy, Marty. We've established that. What fallout has there been? Not much, he said. In fact, maybe none. We have a pretty good statistical picture of what normal trustless transactions activity looks like, and nothing has run the alarm bells yet. Yet, but maybe not ever. Maybe they can't figure out how to exploit what they got. Or maybe they're buying their time, or running an old-school salami slice grift, shaving a lot of pennies, getting ready to cash out. Can you block that? They have to convert trustless coins into fiat to get away with it, right? They do, but we can't stop them. We're on every major exchange, not just other tokens, but also a bunch of different kinds of fiat and stablecoins. How do you think we got to a billion dollars so quickly? Trustless is both highly liquid and highly efficient. That's why it's the future of finance. And money laundering. For a second, I thought he was going to throw his lemonade glass, dash it to the cool flagstones of his roof garden. He took a deep breath, and then another, and set his glass down. And money laundering, Marty. Stop fucking with me. I am keenly aware that there are money launderers using my service. That has been apparent since the start. Some of these money launderers are very far away and would struggle to reach me if my technology did something to upset them. Some of them are closer. He shook his head violently. Marty, I am shitting bricks here. There is another shoe getting ready to drop, and when it does, I'm going to go down with it. Hard. I'm not just talking about losing my reputation and my fortune. I'm not just talking about ruining the life of that woman over there who dragged me back from the brink. I'm talking about being targeted for physical violence by unreasonable, sadistic, powerful criminal men who amass their fortunes by spilling an ocean of blood and who cannot be placated. Nor can they be fended off. Not unless I want to live my life inside a bunker. I don't know who stole those keys, Marty. I shouldn't have had them in the first place. I am now in a position where everything I hold dear is on the line, and so I called you. You and I go way back. You're my friend and I trust you, but I didn't call you because I wanted to cry on your shoulder. You called me because you think I can get the keys back. Bullshit. I called you because I'm desperate. I don't think anyone can get those keys back. I think that inside of a month, everything I care about will be in ruins. Major technology platforms that depend on secure enclaves for things way beyond trustless coin will be exposed because of my recklessness, and they will be fucked. Secure enclaves are designed to be tamper-proof. You try and take one off a board the way I did with those air-gap laptops' network interfaces, and you render them permanently inoperable. They can't be field updated. They have no flashable BIOS. A vulnerability in a secure enclave is permanent. But the trillions of dollars in damage I will do to the largest tech companies in the world will not worry me because I will either be on the run or dead. Not a good death either, Marty. So I called you because before that happens, I plan on exhausting every avenue of mitigation available to me. If I recover them? He snorted. You do that, you might save my life and rescue a third of the top performers in the S&P 500 from their worst earnings call since the great financial crisis. I mean, what do I get? The transformation was incredible. 
One minute he'd been a scared old man, desperate, literally pleading for his life. In a flash, he was calm, back in the realm of numbers, and I was making a deal with a guy who'd eaten ramen for 22 years rather than surrender any more of his future fortune than was absolutely necessary. Well, a 25% commission is obviously out of the question. We're talking about a billion dollars here. That's if I recover the keys before they exfiltrate any of that money. My commission is based on value of recovery, not initial value. So if any of this goes public and the value of a trustless coin falls to zero, I get 25% of nothing. He looks sour. If that happens, you won't have anywhere to send your invoice for your 25% either. But Marty, you can't seriously expect a 250 mil upside here. Daniel Moses Laser, you just got through lecturing me on the trillions in downside if those keys aren't recovered. Note that I did not say that I expected any share of the positive externalities a successful recovery would generate, just the direct benefit to my client. I nodded at him. But a quarter of a billion dollars, or maybe it's nothing, or maybe I'll find myself face to face with these killers you say you'll have to cower in a bunker over until the end of your natural life. Danny... I'm surprised at you. You know who I am. You know what I charge. You know, I don't haggle. He smiled, and I saw a little of the happy, well-fed, successful second act that he'd projected when he answered the door. Yeah, I know. But I had to try. 250 mil is 250 mil. Quarter of a billion dollars here, a quarter of a billion dollars there. Yeah, yeah, pretty soon we're talking real money. You think you can do it? All right, I'm going to stop there. Boy, that was fun to read. Holy crap. I'm going to have such a good time next week. Holy shit, I read for most of an hour. Anyway, this is a long podcast. Stay tuned. I'll let you know how Will reads from it next week. Maybe I'll put a different passage in. Maybe I'll pick it up where this leaves off. You can get the rest of chapter one. Anyway, that was really fun. I hope you go to pluralistic.net slash Kickstarter. Pitch in. I could use the help. I want to make a big splash with this. I want this book to be a bestseller. I want it to prove a lesson to people who are thinking about routing around Audible. And I just, I love this book. I hope you will too. Talk to you later. You've been listening to the Cory Doctor podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, this song is copyrighted in the US under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours, because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Rynex Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K Studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week.